Good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be here with you today. Um, And as Sean said, I'm going to be preaching from Exodus 40, maybe something that you weren't expecting from a guest preacher. I know for me, it's not a familiar text necessarily that I've heard preached on Sunday mornings. And maybe the majority of you here would say the same. Maybe never heard a sermon from Exodus 40. However, as we get started, I want us to just stop for a minute and think. And I want to challenge you that if we understand what's going on in this text, in the story of Israel here in Exodus 40, and if by God's grace we see why the Israelites are doing what they're doing, then this text can change our lives. Specifically, what I want us to think about in our time together is how can God's people gladly and eagerly desire to do all that the Lord commands? How can God's people gladly and eagerly desire to do all that the Lord commands? So before we read this, just a little bit of background. I want to be brief here, but when we come to Exodus 40, we're in the second book of the Bible. And this continues the story that starts in Genesis. It starts with God creating everything that there is in heaven and earth. And he creates Adam and Eve in the garden. But very shortly after this, Adam and Eve decide that they want to take matters into their own hands and they want to do things the way they want to do them instead of God's way. So God, and this is sin, this is rebellion, God banishes, banishes them from the garden, from his presence. But God's not done with his people. Many years later, God chose Abraham to be the one through whom God would bring salvation to the whole world. The people of the nation of Israel that we're going to talk about here in Exodus, they're Abraham's descendants. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. But God remembers his promise that he made to Abraham, and he rescues the people of Israel out of slavery. He makes a covenant with them, basically saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this people, Abraham's descendants, are the people through whom salvation will come through the world. God promised that it would come through Abraham. Israel is his descendants. And so we see this picture. And this is kind of where I wanted us to think about with the background as we uh, pick up here in Exodus 40. This picks up shortly after this covenant ceremony between God and his people. So if you'll follow along with me, we're going to read the whole chapter. Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burning, burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. 
Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. And you shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, and put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and he arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we need you today. Teach us from your word. We ask you to speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, that was a lot. Now, as interesting as it would be to go through this text verse after verse and dive into what all of these pieces of furniture mean, what the basin and the altars and the tables and the bread and the lampstand, as interesting as that would be to dive into all of this, I'm not going to do that today. Today, I want to focus most of our time on one point that this text makes. If you noticed in this chapter, 
there was a phrase that was repeated over and over. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Or in one place it says, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. This phrase is repeated eight times in this chapter. In fact, if we were to read the chapter before, we won't, you would see that it was repeated ten more times in chapter 39. Why is that? What all commands were they obeying? What, why was this refrain repeated? Here in chapter 40, at the end of the book of Exodus, the people of God have just finished building or making the tabernacle and everything in it and everything around it. Now consider something further with me. In chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus, seven chapters, God gives detailed instructions for the building and the making of all of these things. And then in chapters 35 through 40, so six chapters, we are told in detail how the people made everything that the Lord had commanded them to make exactly the way he wanted them to make it. So the first point that I want us to think about and to consider with this repeated phrase that comes up in this chapter is this. The repetition of this phrase here and the many chapters that go into the detail about the instructions and the building of all that make up the tabernacle, all of these things are like the yellow flashing lights that we see on the streets. They're trying to get our attention and to help tell us something important in this text and in the end of Exodus, really. And that is this. The tabernacle is extremely important. That wasn't profound. But the tabernacle is extremely important. We might read through this and, and kind of miss the emphasis, the great emphasis that God and Moses in the book of Exodus puts on the tabernacle. So what was the tabernacle? Why was it so important that it took up at least 13 chapters here at the end of Exodus? Well, in Exodus 25, verse 8, God says this, And let them make me a sanctuary, so that I may dwell in their midst. This tabernacle that they were constructing and setting up here in this chapter was a mobile sanctuary, a tent that could be taken down and transported as Israel would move from place to place. This tent was a sacred space where God chose for his people to dwell. Sorry, let me back up. Where God chose for his presence to dwell in a special way amongst his people. Maybe as I describe this, it doesn't impact us or strike us as amazing. I would guess that it doesn't hit us the way that it should because I read through this the first time and it didn't hit me the way that it should. But here's the thing, friends. God had previously, as I said, banished Adam and Eve from his presence because of their sin and because of their rebellion. And here, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, we see God saying, here's a way for my presence to dwell among you. The first time since the garden where God's presence was going to dwell amongst humanity. Again, this 
should strike us as awesome and wow, the people were sinful. How could a holy God dwell in the midst of his people? This is amazing. I pray that God would grant us eyes to see the glory and the wonder of what his word is saying to us today. Because, why is this so amazing? Because, friends, this is the purpose for which we were created. We were created to glorify and enjoy God forever. And that entails us dwelling with him in his presence. That's, we see that in Genesis. The end goal of Genesis was the Sabbath. Sabbath rest with, where God and his people are enjoying the creation and enjoying the fellowship with one another. We were not created to advance our own career. We were not created to build a happy family or to, commu- to accumulate things so that we can have fun. All, the things, all those things are fine. But ultimately, we were created to dwell with and commune with God, to worship him, to serve him, and to, to, to enjoy our creator. It makes sense then, if you search your heart, that nothing else in this world satisfies ultimately. Nothing else will satisfy our souls. No matter how much money we get, no matter how much success, or whatever that thing is for you, or whatever that thing is for me that I'm striving after in my heart, a lot of those things aren't bad. But ultimately, they won't satisfy because our souls were created to dwell with and commune with God. So that's what's going on in this text. Let's make it plain for a second. We are at the conclusion of all the instructions given and all the work put into the making of this tabernacle. And this is important because this is the end goal of creation and the end goal of salvation. God's people dwelling with him in sweet communion. Or put it another way, God tabernacling with his people. Okay, so a second point I want us to consider about this. We've talked about the importance of this. We've, we've talked about what's going on in this chapter. A second thing I want us to consider about this repeated phrase is the obedience aspect. The text tells us that Moses and the people did according to all that the Lord commanded them. They didn't leave anything out. They took God seriously. They didn't change anything or add anything to it. Now, don't get me wrong, Moses and the Israelites often were not perfect. Often. Keep reading the story. Maybe this seems like a high point. Keep reading. They'll blow it. But in this text, we see them obeying and doing all that the Lord commands. This might be the only time we ever see that. Now, I want to be clear what kind of obedience I'm talking about here. It's not that they're obeying the Ten Commandments perfectly. What they're doing in obeying all that the Lord commanded is following the instructions for building and setting up this tabernacle. Putting another way, they're obeying everything the Lord has commanded them to do so that his presence might dwell with them. Kind of a worshipful obedience, right? But I do think generally we can apply what we're going to talk about to obedience in general. And I'll keep making those distinctions as we go through. But anyways... They, were to, they obeyed everything here. In fact, Moses was instructed to take up a contribution, an offering from all the people to go into this 
construction of the tabernacle. And we read in chapter 36, verse 3 through 7, you can look it up later, but essentially what it says is that Moses had to tell the people to stop bringing things because there was more than enough. So I hope all of this picture can help us to see that, the, that Moses and the people of Israel's obedience here when they're trying to obey God so that his presence might dwell with them is eager and generous. They are gladly doing the work. They are gladly sacrificing the things that they have to, to go into this work. So with these two points together, the first one being the importance of the tabernacle, it was the dwelling place of God. And then number two, the generous and eager obedience of the people to do all that the Lord commanded. The main idea I want us to see here is this. God's people will gladly and eagerly desire to do all that the Lord commands when by his grace we see the wonder and the glory of the way that he has provided for us to dwell with him. Let me say that again. The main idea I want to talk about today is God's people will gladly and eagerly desire to do all the Lord commands when by his grace we see the wonder and the glory of the way he has provided for us to dwell with him. So think with me about the Israelites. As we've said, they were enslaved in Egypt. And theologically, what that means is that Egypt represents a place of death. They are far from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. They are far from the land which God promised to Abraham, Canaan, later renamed Israel. They're far from that. They are not under God's rule, but they're under foreign rule. So God, in his mercy and his grace, delivers them from this slavery, from this death. In his grace, he makes a covenant with them. I will be your God. You will be my people. And in his grace, he makes a way for his presence to dwell among them. That is amazing. So it makes sense logically that it would be fitting for them to gladly worship and obey the Lord, right? That makes sense. The Lord is their creator. He is their king. And not only that, but their redeemer, the one who has brought them out of death and given them new life. It makes sense why they would eagerly and generously do all of these things. But let's be honest about ourselves and our lives. Do we obey all that the Lord commands? Obviously not. We all know that. Nobody's perfect. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, sometimes when we do obey, we do it out of the wrong motivation. So let me be honest. Sometimes I obey because I know other people are watching. And I don't want them to see me fall. I don't want you to see me fall. And that's wicked and sinful when you think about it because I care more about what people think than what God thinks because God always sees me fall, right? How often do I, am I okay with doing something I know is wrong because I know nobody's going to find out about it? But God knows. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I obey not only so that other people don't see me fall, but because I want to feel superior to other people who have fallen in that way. I'm just letting it all out there. I'm wicked. That, that happens in my heart. And, and maybe some of you feel the same way. 
Many times I don't do all that the Lord has commanded, but I leave undone that which he requires. And specifically in line with this text, this idea of God's presence dwelling with his people and him making a way for them to even enter into his presence and, dwell, and, and to commune with him. Sometimes, many times I don't obey the Lord and draw near to him in worship. I've got so many other things going on in my life and so many other distractions that is so easy to keep me distracted. And I'm willing to guess that I'm not alone. Many of us are in this situation. And the goal of me saying all of this is not simply to make us feel guilty. Now, maybe some of us do need to repent for things that we're doing or things that we're neglecting. And it's not simply for us to make us feel guilty but it's to get us to think about these things and ask why. Why are we not eagerly seeking to draw near to the Lord? Why are we eagerly not seeking to do all that he commands? If like Israel here, God has provided a way in his grace, something that we do not deserve for his people to dwell amongst his presence, then why don't we seek to draw near to him? Sin, yes, there's sin in our lives. But specifically, what is it? Can you maybe even take a moment to think of specific things in your life? What specific sinful things are holding you back from drawing near to the Lord, obeying Him to, to come near to Him, to ask, to seek, to knock? There might be a, an assortment of reasons for different people in this room, but I think for me and maybe for many of us here, what it boils down to for me is this. I am not constantly living with this big picture in mind. I'm not remembering where God has brought me up from, and I'm not remembering why he has done it. Ultimately, the why is the picture we see here in Exodus. He has saved us because he's gracious, because he's God, and the ultimate end goal is to save us so that we can dwell with him. And we see that end goal at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22 as well. I'm not keeping that constantly on my mind. I'm forgetting it, if you will. But I think the Israelites, at least at this point in the text, in some way realize this at least in part, in some way. They're realizing that everything that happened in the exodus from slavery in Egypt, and then they see God saying to them, hey, here's how I can dwell in your presence. They realize that in part. And so they're eager to obey. They're eager to, let's construct this thing. Let's get God dwelling amongst us because that's what we need most desperately. They see this grand opportunity of God tabernacling among them, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes we don't. If you're not a Christian in here, I want to say welcome. Maybe you're a guest. I'm a guest as well. And I know some of this might not make sense. There's tabernacles and tents and altars and priests and holy garments and, and all of these things. Dwelling with God, what is that all about? I understand that that could be confusing or or, or something to you, I want to address you really quick and just say to you, we believe that all of this is true. And that might sound crazy. We believe that there was a man named Jesus and 2,000 years ago, he rose from the dead. We believe it. 
And we want you to believe that too. We want you to continue to ask questions and to seek after that because we believe that God is the satisfaction of our souls, that dwelling with God forever and eternity is, is where we need to be and we want you to be there with us. So the message here, just in case I haven't made it plain, and the message of the Bible is not just be a good person and obey. The Bible actually teaches us that that is impossible. This might seem like a high point of Israel, but again, like I said earlier, keep reading. They'll mess it all up. The good news of the gospel is is this, friends. Despite Israel's rebellion and despite our own rebellion and sin, God has not abandoned his plan and his purpose for creation. He has always desired to dwell with and commune with humanity in this wonderful creation that he has created. And this is what I mean when I say Christians often forget where God has brought us from and why. All of us have rebelled. All of us have sinned. And that is the condition we're all born into. But God rescues us from this condition. He saves us from our sins. How does he do this? Well, John 1 tells us that Jesus, the word of God, God came to us and took on human flesh and walked among us. And that through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven, Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for us to be saved, for us to be made holy, for us to be united to Jesus now, and then one day dwell with him in a renewed creation. The point of all this is that God has made a way. We rebelled, yet in his grace, he makes a way for us to be forgiven. He makes a way for us to become holy. He makes a way so that we can dwell in his presence and enjoy communion with him. If you're not a Christian, we, you are welcome here, always. And there's always an open invitation to ask questions, to talk with us, to talk with Sean more about the Christian worldview. We desire for you to know God. And the way Jesus has made for us to know God is to repent Turn from the way that we have chosen and turn to the way that Jesus has made for us. Trust him. He has accomplished everything for your salvation. Now, Christian friends, I hope you can see what I've been struggling with. I hope you can see what I've been thinking about as I've been preparing for this sermon. How do I cultivate this eagerness to do all that the Lord commands? I want to. Sometimes I don't. I want to gladly and eagerly obey the Lord. Don't you? I desire to refrain from all that his word says is sin. But specifically, going along with this text, I desire to follow his way, to draw near to him in worship, to draw near to him in corporate worship with the church, to draw near to him individually and in personal worship. So what do we do? With, th- with this text in mind, how can we think about our obedience in general and specifically in drawing near to the Lord? How can we cultivate this glad and eager obedience? I'm going to have three points of application. Before I do it, I wanted to kind of give an umbrella to which all of these fall under. I think that all of these applications are good And I want to encourage us in them, and they should be done individually, but I think more importantly, they need to be done corporately in community with other believers. Because if you're anything like me, when I get alone, it's easy to to fall into temptation or to 
not do the things that I need to do. But when I'm in community with other brothers and sisters, it's easier for them to call me to obedience. It's easier for them to encourage me to do these things. So I would say, this must be done in community with other believers. So first, first application, I want us to remember who we are in Christ and how we got there. Here in Exodus 40, something we need to remember is that the Israelites were not constructing the tabernacle and obeying God's instructions in order to become God's people. They already were God's people because of the covenant that God made with them, okay? The tabernacle then was a way for God to dwell amongst his sinful people and for them to draw near to him in worship, okay? So their obedience was not, we are following all of these instructions so that we can be saved or so that we can become God's people. No, God had told them how he might dwell with them. It's similar to us today. We do not obey to earn salvation. We cannot do enough good to earn God's favor. The Bible actually says our good works in God's sight are like filthy rags when we are apart from him. We cannot earn our own salvation. And Christians, we know that we have already obtained this salvation by grace through faith. So in a general sense, Christians, we obey God essentially because he's revealed in his word how life is to be lived. God created this world. God created us. God created this life. He knows how we can live in a flourishing way. But even more specifically for our purposes today, the obedience here in Exodus, remember, is about God's people having God's presence among them. He says, this is how I may dwell in your midst. But the good, part of the good news is we don't have to go outside and build a tent. We have access to God by grace because his spirit dwells within us, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have access to God through what Christ has done and by the spirit dwelling with us, within us. Yes, at times we all have fallen feelings where we feel far away from God. Sometimes like we feel like God's not near. Sometimes we feel like God's not pleased with us. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Remember, first point of application is remember. Remember that you are a child of God. Remember that you have access to him by his spirit who dwells within you. We are in constant need of reminder of this. Okay, number two. We need to remember who we are. Number two, we need to remember that holiness is given to us by God. In our passage, we see instructions in verses 9 through 15 about Moses anointing with oil and consecrating the priest and the tabernacle and everything in it. And the point of all of this consecrating and anointing is what he says in verse 9. God says this, Then you shall take the anointing oil and, the, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. 
so that it may become holy. What does this mean? The tabernacle was not a holy place by itself. It was not built and constructed and then automatically it's holy. God's presence entering into the tabernacle made the tabernacle holy. Consecration and anointing were basically, this is a very simple way to put it, but basically the idea of preparing these items and the priests and the tabernacle for God to enter in and make it holy. Set these things apart for God so that he could come in and dwell. Does that make sense? The tabernacle didn't have holiness in itself. God made it holy. And he commanded Moses to prepare it for holiness. So what does that mean for us? For us, we know that it is God who makes us holy. When we are united to Jesus in salvation, we are called saints, holy ones. In God's sight, we are his holy people, his treasured possession. Amen. Hallelujah. But we are still called to be holy. God says, be holy, therefore, because I am holy. What does this mean? How is this achieved? Is it simply for us to strive with our outward obedience? I don't think that's, it's as simple as that. If it were then the Pharisees would be some of the most holy people because they were some of the best at obeying the commands. Becoming Christ-like, becoming more holy, I believe, is God's doing. God is the source of our holiness. That's salvation. He makes us positionally holy. And then as we are drawing near to him and as we are obeying his commands, it is God who makes us holy. Does that make sense? The reason I'll bring this up, one of the reasons I want this to be an application point, I'm going to say exactly what the application point is in a second, is because sometimes we struggle with deep guilt and deep shame. And we clench our fists and we grit our teeth and we try our hardest to obey. And it's hard. And and many times, all the time, it doesn't work perfectly. And it's easy sometimes for the Christian to live in guilt and in shame because of what we're doing, because of things that we've done years ago in the past, or shame because of things that were done to us years ago in the past, and we feel like we can't draw near to God. But I want to tell you that that's not true, and that's good news. God, in his grace, has made you holy, and he has made a way for you to draw near to him. You don't have to strive and feel burdened to do all of these good things and then come to God and worship. No. Come to him. So the goal is to draw near to the one who has graciously given us access to him. And as we draw near, he makes us holy. He renews our minds. He transforms us. He sanctifies us. He makes us more like Christ. So how do we draw near? This is the second application point. Sorry, it was a long time. I wanted to make that plain, make that clear. We draw near to him the way we tell our children to draw near to him. Read the Bible. Pray. Be in community with other believers. Read good books. Listen to good music. That may sound simple, but if you're anything like me, it's really easy to go a day without spending time with the Lord, is it not? 
It's really easy. I think this is partly spiritual warfare. The enemy does not want us to draw near to the Lord. And it might be simple, but it can be hard at times. So I would encourage you, if you haven't made a habit of drawing near to the Lord, set aside five minutes a day. Start there. Start easy. Don't, you don't have to spend four hours into the Word if you're just starting to create a habit. You'll never succeed at that. Start five minutes a day. Say a short prayer. Lord, I want to draw near to you. You're awesome. Forgive me of my sin. I want to spend time in your word. Teach me. And then see what happens from there. I promise you, God will increase your desire. And you're like, okay, five minutes. is After a few weeks, a few months, a few days, five minutes is easy. I can spend 15 minutes easy. I can spend 20 minutes easy. So draw near to the Lord. If I'm honest, this has been really hard for me since seminary. I spent four years having, I had to study the Bible, and I loved it. I loved it, but I had to do it. And I was also teaching in a church. So I was studying for my tests, studying for my papers, writing things, reading bukus of pages, and then studying to teach three times a week. I was so immersed in Scripture that when I got out of all of those responsibilities, it was weird. It was hard. I couldn't. I was depressed, kind of. So I say that to say I understand how it can be hard, but I want to encourage you with this passage, with this message. God's presence is sweet. Communing with Him is glorious. If you're struggling there, get with other brothers and sisters and confess that and let them encourage you. God, the Bible says this in James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Sometimes I don't believe that. But if we believed that, how wonderful would it be? Okay, third, finally. I want to read verse 34 and 35 in chapter 40 again. The text says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What's going on here? Did you notice that? The, like, can you imagine that? The glory of the Lord descending upon and filling this tent that the people had just made. What? an amazing sight. And it was so amazing and so awesome that Moses, Moses, God's friend, could not enter into the tabernacle. What's going on here? So follow with me now. Israel is enslaved. God takes action to deliver them from slavery. God takes action to make a covenant with them. God takes action by instructing them how to build a tabernacle so that he can tabernacle among them. Israel and Moses cannot enter the tabernacle here at the end of chapter 40, at the end of Exodus. That's what we have the book of Leviticus for. That's a plug to come in here. Sean teach through the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the way God has revealed so that his people might enter into and come near to him in his presence. But again, notice the theme here. It's God taking action. It's God saying, hey, here's how you do this. Okay, we can't go in. Okay, here's the way in. Here's how you can enter into my presence. 
It's all of God's action. How gracious is he? And ultimately, this Old Testament way or this Levitical way of drawing near to the presence of God is inadequate because of our sin. And at the end of Leviticus, we see blessings and curses. At the height of the blessing that they could attain, in Leviticus 26, verses 11 through 12, God says, and I will walk among you. Not just tabernacle, I will walk among you. But the lowest point of the curses is that if you go and worship and serve other gods, if you go in rebellion like Adam and Eve, you will be banished from God's presence. And ultimately, this is what happened. They were banished from the land. They were banished from God's presence. However, the good news, again, is that God has not abandoned his plans for dwelling with humanity. In his grace, we see in John 1 that God takes action yet again. The word of God, Jesus, becomes flesh, and the word says, and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. Literally the blessing of Leviticus, that God would walk among his people walk among humanity, and we didn't deserve it. And then it was read earlier, John 14, 6. Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, but he will come again and bring us to himself. He says, and you know the way. Thomas didn't know the way, or he did, but he acted like he didn't. He wasn't thinking. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth in the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's God's action, brothers and sisters, from beginning to end to rescue us so that we might dwell with him for all eternity. Jesus came to us. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven all so that we can be saved. It's all God's doing. And that's the final application. Kind of like an application sandwich. We need to remember. We need to use our minds and remember who we are in Christ. We need to take action and draw near to him. And then here, just remember that it's all God's doing, that it's all God's grace. And let this good news melt our hearts, stir our affections. This is the greatest story ever told. This is better than any romantic comedy that we could watch or any love story that we could read. This, this is better. The omniscient, all-knowing God, the omnipotent, all-powerful God, the creator and the king, the alpha and the omega, he holds the universe in the palms of his hands. In Genesis 1, he spoke and the universe came into existence. He loves us. He died for us. He desires for us to dwell in his presence. Oh, that we would see with our eyes and understand with our hearts how wonderful this news is, how wonderful God is. We have access to the king. We have access to our God. Why wouldn't we draw near to him? Brothers and sisters, let us seek him. He is the satisfaction of our souls. He is better than silver or gold. He is sweeter than honey. He loves us. He's better than those things that are distracting us from drawing near to his presence. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's our mighty God. He's our everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. Let us draw near to him. Let us draw near to him. And one day, on that glorious day when Jesus comes back, 
John sees a picture of it in Revelation 21. He says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our end goal. That is a beautiful vision. And in Revelation 22, it says, and we will see his face. We will behold the face of our king. Brothers and sisters, let's repent and trust in the Lord. Let's repent from our distractions. Let's repent from our sins. Let's repent from refraining from drawing near to our king. This is good. It's sin not to do it. And it is good to do it. Let's trust that he is good. Until that day, let us keep this good news on our minds and our hearts every day. Let us continually draw near to the Lord. I hope that we see. I hope I've done a good job of making it plain that the Lord... The Lord's commands can be a glad and eager obedience as we behold how gracious he is to provide a way of access for us into his presence and how wonderful it is to be there. Let's pray. God, we need you. I believe that your word is powerful. I believe that your spirit is working. And through your word, you you. Open the eyes of the blind. You open the ears of the deaf. You open the hearts of those who who are hard-hearted. So for the non-Christian in here, I pray that you would help help them to see your beauty. Lord, and for us who are Christians, help us to see where we struggle and we fall and we haven't been drawing near to you and how wonderful that is, how glorious that is. We ask that you would stir our affections. We ask that you would soften our hearts. We ask that you would cause your name to be the treasure of our heart, of our mind, of our soul. We desire to do what you command. We desire to be a people, a light in this world, bringing glory to you and pointing the nations to your gospel. So we ask that you would work. We ask that you would do what you can only do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.